You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land, and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jaramelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is episode 746 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 1st, 2023 which is to say that we're just three short days from my wife's due date with our eighth son, our ninth child. We're also just four days away from my birthday. So that's exciting. That's fun. Also, I like the month of November generally. This is not just the month of my birth. It's also the month in which my wife and I celebrate our anniversary. This November, we celebrate 17 years. We are expecting our ninth child, and we are celebrating 17 years of marriage. Very exciting for us, and we are (laughs) very tickled to be in the place that we're in. God has been good to us. The economic times are difficult. The political situation in our country is uncertain. The political situation in the world is uncertain right now. But God has been good to us, and so we are going to celebrate, when the time comes, the birth of this baby boy, we're going to celebrate my birthday after a fashion. It'll probably just be a nice meal. 
And we're going to celebrate 17 years of marriage because all of those are good gifts from God. Whatever the rest of the countryside, whatever the rest of the nation is doing, whatever the economy is doing, God is still good. But let's talk about 1 Samuel chapter 27. And speaking of, right? Speaking of whatever the circumstances, politically, economically, socially, God is still good. Here we see a short chapter. It didn't take all that long to read through. I'll take longer to explain it than it took to read it, but we're not going to dwell on it a long time. It'll make more sense for me to explain certain things in the next chapter, in our next episode, by referring back. But for right now, let's just be honest. Let's be honest that there is a certain revulsion that is common, especially in the modern day, especially post-enlightenment, especially in secularized America, a secularized West. There's a revulsion that we feel when we read about these things in the Old Testament. We read about men, women, and children in some cases being killed in places that God tells either Joshua and the Israelites who are following him to go into, or places that David here is operating in and around. You have men and women being put to the sword by David and his 600 men as they make raids for a year and four months while they're living with the Philistines. And let's just face it, right? This is uncomfortable. It is. It's an uncomfortable thing. And what category do we put these stories into? Do we say that everything David was doing here was good because he is God's anointed? Do we say that this is categorically bad behavior? This is evil. This is corrupt because we have a code of chivalry or we have standards and norms of warfare. What is legal now? And we retroactively apply that and superimpose that on David here. Do we say, who knows, right? Do we say, let's get away from the categories of good and evil? Well, later on in this episode, we will be talking about The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. We will be talking about some voices today, some influences today who are encouraging us for the sake of being able to live together, make decisions together politically, socially. Let's get away from the categories of good and evil because everybody just gets all upset and worked up once you start talking good and evil instead of, well, I disagree with this, I agree with that. But is that the right answer? Is it the right answer to get away from talk of good and evil? Do we need to pass judgment? Maybe that's another question. What is the benefit? What is to be gained from passing judgment on what David is doing here? He flees to the Philistines. Was that good? Was that a betrayal? Should he have just stuck it out? Should he have stayed in Israel and come what may? Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. Is that what he should have done? Do we have to pass judgment? Do we have to come to a moral judgment with regards to David fleeing to Achish, the king of the Philistines? If there's something to be gained, might I just put forward that we think passing judgment will help us to solidify and establish a sense of shared values, shared community values 
This is part of why we do past judgment. That's part of why we talk about current events. We talk about the news. We talk about what we read in great works of literature or in history. We talk about what we read in the Bible and we make value judgments in part because we're trying to either conform ourselves to what the perceived social imaginary is, the perceived zeitgeist, the perceived community standard is, or we're trying to shape and mold and guide and steer that. Might I just put forward that if you're in David's shoes in 1 Samuel 27, you are feeling very alienated. You have these 600 men plus their households, plus their wives. You have your own two wives now, and David has two. Yes, do we need to pass judgment on that as well? Do we need to say that that's good or that's evil or good and evil don't apply here? We at least have to say that it's a thing, right? This is a thing. And if you're in David's shoes, Saul has, despite being the Lord's anointed over Israel, sought his life, turned the kingdom upside down, pursued after him, said he wasn't going to, and then went right back to it again, said he wouldn't do it again, come back, come back to me. David doesn't trust him. Where is safe? Wherever David is going to live among his fellow Israelites, are they just going to go to Saul and say, ah, here's an opportunity, right? Will you ever be able to rest and feel as though you can breathe easy again so long as you are living among the Israelites? Does David feel a sense of protectiveness? Does he feel a responsibility to the 600 men who are following him? who similarly are following him because they also feel alienated in this climate, in this environment that Saul has created by his arbitrary whim being the rule of law or the closest approximation to the rule of law, where Saul just does whatever seems good to him or whatever he's feeling at the moment, kills whoever he wants to kill among the Israelites. Say, for instance, when they help David to escape, these 600 men, does David feel a sense of responsibility for them? Does he feel like he needs to make sure that they and their households are protected? If that's what it is that drives him to flee, not just self-preservation, but also a sense of, I have the weight and responsibility to protect these men, is that what drives him to take refuge among the Philistines? If so, right? I think that's very plausible. But if so, if it's both and, all of the above, Is that good? Well, I would put forward that that at least is good. It's good that he would try to preserve his own life. He's not necessarily doing anything wrong per se. We might feel like, ooh, that's complicated, right? That's a complex moral equation (laughs) that was just performed. I don't know if you came to the right answer, but at least that instinct to be protective of his own life, the life of his own household, the life of, remember, his brother's, His father's household came to be with him. So he's protecting his father's household. He's protecting his father and his brothers, I would conclude. That's good. The sense that this would be protective of the 600 men and their households, the 600 men who follow after David, that's good. But then, boy, howdy, does that say something? Doesn't that just paint a stark reality, a a ugly picture of how dangerous Israel is, that even the Philistines 
would be preferable. You'd rather go and take refuge among the Philistines than be at Saul's mercy. The bigger issue here than whether it's morally good, evil, neutral for David to go to the Philistines is what drove him there in the first place. That is evil. What Saul has created in the way of conditions, the insecurity, the unrest, the instability, the chaos, the disorder in Israel that Saul has created because of his emotional turbulence, his spiritual, I would say, rebellion against God, against the law of God, that is evil. And insofar as so many others, you don't know, are they going to just give Saul whatever he wants? Or out of their own sense of self-preservation, will they hang back as other people just do whatever to ingratiate themselves to the king? That's the environment. That's the situation here. And that is evil. That is not how it should be. But then David goes and lives among the Philistines and the king, Achish. He reasons that David has made himself such an utter stench to his own people, Israel, He's going to always be my servant. He's never going to be able to go back. But then what is the reason for that? What goes into Achish's reasoning? He asks David, where have you been raiding lately? Where were you just now before you came back? Oh, I was raiding against this part of Judah, against that part of the Jeramelites or the Kenites. Other peoples, right? Other peoples that are not going to worry a king of the Philistines if they're raided. Was it true? No. Was David lying? Yes. Do we need to pass moral judgment on that? The text doesn't. The text just presents it and says this is what it was, right? This is just what happened. I think it's okay then for us to just say this is what happened. And when we're not sure, then don't sanctify it. Don't say, ah, this is automatically good just because it was presented. It's okay to reserve judgment. That's all I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to get at. David lies to Achish, his even being there in the first place, his raiding where he kills the men and the women alike. If you're not sure, if you couldn't justify your moral judgment, if you were to say, well, that's evil. If asked, well, how do you know that it's evil? you couldn't provide a cogent answer, well, then just reserve judgment. That's okay. It's an acceptable position to take when you're not sure. Just say, I'm not sure. And if you have the opportunity to mull it over, turn it over in your head, and come to a conclusion at some point, that would be good. Particularly if these kinds of scenarios crop up in our day or confront you from time to time, it would be good for you to really grapple with it. But then the question is relevance. And again, the question is, What are we hoping to gain? Are we hoping to gain people's attention, people's favor, that people would think well of us because we come to moral judgments about things and we proclaim those very confidently? Be careful. Be careful. That is such a trap. One, you might corrupt justice. If you're too addicted to people thinking that you have so much wisdom, You might corrupt justice because you're not saying what you should be saying to absolve the innocent, and you are saying what you shouldn't say to condemn the innocent. You might be tempted to say things you shouldn't to absolve the guilty also, and that's not good. If your benefit is going to be, 
well, hey, I'm coming to a moral judgment on this because I need to make a decision that is adjacent or I need to help someone else to make a decision that's adjacent to this kind of a scenario. It has similarities. I need to determine if this kind of a thing is good so that I give wise counsel to this other person. Well, then that is a good answer. If you want to come to a conclusion because you want to honor God and you want to love your neighbor well, that is a good reason. But just be careful, right? Be careful what your reasons are, in fact, that they are reverence for God, love for your fellow man. Make sure that that's what they are. That's all I'm going to say. That's all That's all I will say for now with regards to 1 Samuel chapter 27. Getting into some commentary on current events and various things that I have found interesting online here recently. Let's go back to AaronWren.com and talk about his newsletter titled Evangelicals Need to Stop Shaming Men. That's the title. He writes, as of October 26th, so in the past week, this week in World Magazine's opinion section, Nathaniel Blake from EPPC wrote an essay arguing that an aversion to marriage by men is unmanly. Here is a paragraph quoted from that piece in World. Quote, anti-marriage influencers claim to be looking after men's interests, but they are directing men toward unhappy, cowardly lives. The rejoinder from Davis, and here I do believe he's referring to Pearl Davis, just pearly things, at just pearly things. The rejoinder from Davis and her followers was that the problem with marriage is in the potential for failure. Sure, a happy marriage might be great, but a bad one may be so miserable or a divorce so devastating that marriage is not worth attempting. Though Davis overstates the prevalence of these ills, they are real. Men can have their hearts broken, their bank accounts drained, and their children taken from them. Thus, though Lyman Stone is correct that the risks of divorce do not, on aggregate, offset the benefit of marriage, and furthermore, that divorced men have the same happiness as never married men, this is not really about the data. Rather, it is about courage and what it is to be a man. He goes on to say in another paragraph quoted here, some risks are not worth taking, but marriage is not so intrinsically foolhardy as to be among them even in 2023. Indeed, marriage is the vocation that the great majority of men are called to, and it is not as if Davis and the rest are encouraging men to remain unmarried in order to devote themselves to the service of God and his people. Rather, those telling men not to fulfill their vocations as husbands and fathers are basing this counsel on reasons that are weak and cowardly. For all of their supposed sympathy, it is they who seek to stunt men's nature and sacrifice our calling in exchange for the promise of a tame security. This is unmanly. And then another quote. Men are not made to sit quietly, avoiding all perils in this life, but to grow and brave them. Cowards will shrink from this, but men who want to live as men are meant to live will welcome the dangers and difficulties as well as the joys and satisfactions of love and marriage, end quote. Now, before I share with you what Aaron Wren had to say about this, I look at this and I am as interested in what is not being said as I am interested in what is being said. What's not being said is, hey, we who have influence need to wield our influence to tackle the things that are being brought to light by the men's rights movement 
or the men going their own way, as it's sometimes referred, or the manosphere, for shorthand. What I don't hear is, for all this talk of courage, I don't hear anything in these paragraphs quoted about, let's tackle the no-fault divorce. Let's tackle the fundamentals within the evangelical church or evangelical churches or evangelical denominations. Let's tackle the issues with women being pandered to, being flattered, men being browbeaten, henpecked, piled on, and driven out. I don't hear that, but here's what Aaron Wren has to say. Bleck's essay is classic evangelical shaming of men. They need to man up and marry all those single ladies in the pews, and if they don't, they aren't real men. They are cowards. Notably, he doesn't deny any of the arguments made by the anti-marriage advocates online, who are just the latest incarnation of a movement called MGTOW for men going their own way, arguing that men should avoid marriage and often any entanglements with women as much as possible. These advocates tout things like divorce risk facing men. It's one of the most well-known facts in social science that women initiate the vast majority of divorces, around 70% or so, depending on the source you look at. It's a fact that I have never heard an evangelical pastor mention. In fact, as one feminist scholar found in her academic research in evangelical sermons, quote, women are framed primarily as receivers of divorce rather than initiators, end quote. And while there have been improvements, divorce court and child custody practices still favor women. Now, I happen to be an advocate for marriage myself, Aaron Wren continues, which I believe is the normative pattern of human life, though isn't for everyone. And I affirm that people are entitled to make their own decisions in life about what they think will work best for them. I too believe that the benefits of marriage outweigh the risks. I would also agree that there are things you can do to reduce your divorce risk. One of the most important is weighing the statistical likelihood of divorce based on the characteristics of both you and the woman you are planning to marry. Moneyball for marriage. At the same time, simply accusing men who are hesitant to get married in this environment of being unmanly or cowards is not productive. It's also worth asking what Blake, and by extension the rest of the evangelical leadership class, are doing to reduce these risks, help men manage them, or to create an environment in which men have a better chance of marital success? The answer is basically nothing. Now, let's just stop, right? Let's just stop right there and recognize that he is saying exactly what I just said. What do you not find? What you will find very often is if it's addressed, it's addressed as a problem with the men. But what do you not find? You don't find mitigation. <laughs> you hear a admission, perhaps, maybe, possibly, that yes, that is, you know, it's not easy, right? Yeah, but are we facilitating? Or are we actually, and this would be my position, are we facilitating in far too many cases this being made worse? It's a problem in part because evangelical Christians have given a certain flattery to women. They've been hands off. When it comes to mitigating, they don't lift a finger, but they will pile on, they will express solidarity with the women in a show of partiality. Not chivalry, but flattery. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, when he is announcing, proclaiming seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says in verse 2, starting in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth. For you have one Father who is in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus gets at there when he says that the scribes and the Pharisees make the burden heavy, they lay a heavy burden hard to bear on people's shoulders, and they won't even lift a finger to lighten the burden. That is what the mainstream evangelical church has been doing with regards to this situation. Part of the reason why they're not speaking out in favor of lifting the burden is because they're the ones who put the burden on those men in the first place. They're the ones who made marriage this very disproportionate, very unbalanced, very unbiblical thing, actually, ironically, in many ways. Telling half the truth damning by faint praise, sometimes just piling on criticism after criticism after criticism, sometimes just outright saying that if anything goes wrong in the marriage, it's automatically the man's fault. Now, here I'll point to Doug Wilson, pastor in Moscow, Idaho. I'll say Doug Wilson is one who has been even-handed. He's one of the few that I've heard who has been even-handed and careful, although also certainly a pot stirrer, and you can tell that he knows that he's a pot stirrer. It's not news. It's not a mystery. Everybody's told him. He knows. He grins wryly and continues stirring the pot, which I appreciate. I find it refreshing, personally. I think he is lifting a finger to try and relieve this burden, and he's not just piling on and saying, ah, yes, everything is the man's fault. But what does he say? He says, It may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I would agree with that. And I think that distinction is really important. And that would be helpful to tell the MGTOW folks, the Manosphere folks. There's a difference between it being your fault and it being your responsibility. It's not your fault, men, if feminism has wrecked the landscape socially, has made it extraordinarily difficult for you to be a man after God's own heart to be a manly man, and also be palatable, be tolerable to a modern woman, to find a woman who's going to also love the Lord and be submissive to you, just like the scriptures say. It may not be your fault, but he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It is your responsibility to do something about it. Even if you find this excellent wife, like Proverbs would say, even if you find her, her continuing to be excellent when there are so many temptations, there are so many influences from broader society. That may not be your fault once you find yourself in a marriage and it's difficult and there are challenges to work through. It will be your responsibility to address those, to deal with those as they come up. But you definitely have the mainstream evangelical position being either crickets, silence, not lifting a finger, or in far too many cases saying, it's all your fault, men. 
It's your fault. And oh, if you don't like being whacked like a pinata when we tell women to be contentious, when you decide it would be better to live on the corner of a rooftop than to dwell with a contentious woman, just like Proverbs says, we're going to say, that's you being a coward. Ah, chicken. No, this is the same attitude, the same mindset that women who go very badly, you want to talk about toxic masculinity, the toxic femininity ladies who've internalized and with the utmost righteous indignation articulate feminist screeds against the men in their lives, the evangelical world sounds just like them in too many cases. Beat up on the men, nag them, criticize them, put them down, humiliate them in front of others. And then when they try to leave with some shred of dignity, when they try and make an escape, call them cowards. And then if they lash out, if they get upset, if they blow up, then you say, ah, see, 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 you see that? You hear that? He got angry. Ooh, he's scary now. Now let's talk about toxic masculinity. It's abusive, right? It's terribly abusive. It's wicked. It's sinful. Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees in our day who are doing this, who are perpetrating this, who have put it in place or they flatter this consensus all the while. They're the ones who have the temerity to talk about how men need to stop being cowards. Man up. Mm, You first, right? You first. You man up first. And then you'll have a little bit of credibility to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You have a plank in yours with regards to this. Evangelical Christians in the mainstream, I'm sorry to say, there's a plank in the eye of mainstream evangelical Christianity. The MGTOW guys, I think, might just be David going to the king of the Philistines when Saul is persecuting him. In fact, I think there's a lot of the story of David and Saul that has scaled up a resemblance to how laymen, young men in churches are related to by older men who have this position of power and authority and they wield it capriciously. They can sprinkle in some God talk to destroy a man socially, to destroy him, mind, body, and soul at the end of the day. Because if he internalizes all of it, well, now he's physically unhealthy. And I think this is part of the reason why obesity is such a problem in so many churches, because these guys, they they eat their stress. They don't deal with problems. They supposedly turn the other cheek, but it's really just eating their stress, right? They turn the other cheek to have a bite of that casserole too at the potluck. This is a major problem and the real courage is needed in dealing with the underlying factors or advising men on here's how to be wise. The wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves. That's biblical. That's Proverbs. The fool continues on and finds out. (laughs) Fools around and finds out. The more you fool around, the more you're going to find out. Men are not fools when they say, hey, this is stacked against me. This deck is stacked against me. The house always wins. This is a losing proposition for me. I'm going to not. I'm not going to participate. Rather than us saying to each individual man, you should have the courage to get in there anyways, irrespective of the circumstances and the dynamics, we should be saying, hey, listen, here's how to know if you have found a woman who would be an excellent wife. 
he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Here's how to be the kind of man who is going to have a good conscience. We will have your back. If you are doing these things and you're not doing these other things, we will absolutely be in your corner because this is what Jesus said to do. And it's not made up stuff that we're just trying to pile on to you with. And it's not totally arbitrary and it's not totally random. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Here is the orderliness that God intended for the institution of marriage. Here you go. This is what we're for. Count on it. That's what we should be doing. If we do that, then we'll see more men wanting to get married in the first place. I'm sure of it. Moving on, though, and not going very far. Not to be Holly Ash, October 17th, so a few weeks old at this point, Britney Spears says she and Justin Timberlake aborted their baby two decades ago, claims Timberlake encouraged it. You've probably heard this story already, especially if you're in my generation. But even if you're younger, if you're older, it's been all over the news. Everybody's got an opinion about it. I'm not here just to share an opinion. I'm here to make an observation that I think is pertinent and I think it's relevant and I think it's instructive to what I was just talking about in Aaron Wren's piece is right up. This business, when they were both around 19, which by the way, by the way, that's how old my wife was when we got married. I had just turned 20. Remember how I was saying November is the month in which we celebrate my birthday in my house. And also it's the month in which we celebrate my wife's and my anniversary. Well, 17 years ago, later this month, 17 years ago, I had just turned 20 when Lauren and I exchanged vows. It's amazing for me to read this business with Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears. They were dating. They got pregnant. And what did he say to her? We're too young to have a baby. We're too young to be parents. And so he pressured her, according to her, to get an abortion. She didn't believe in that. She was raised in a home where you don't do that. That's not moral. That's not right. We'll get into this later on with Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, whether we should pass some kind of a judgment on abortion or we should abstain because women get abortions. We don't want to upset them for saying that this is evil. We'll get into more of that later. But for right now, understand that there are a number of people, several people in the mix here who bear some responsibility. One, where were their parents? Where were Justin Timberlake's parents? Where were Britney Spears' parents? For that matter, too, what kind of influence, if not from parents, what kind of influence was being wielded by, oh, I don't know, the agents, the record labels, Walt Disney Company? Was there pressure brought to bear various ways? Were things left out? Was this neglect, actually, on the part of the people, the adults in the room who were making a ridiculous amount of money off of these two young celebrities when they were 19? Was it negligence? Did they have a responsibility to speak into the situation or were they just being mercenary about it? What was the fear? Well, I think I have some idea. When these two got pregnant because they weren't married, but they were fooling around. They weren't (laughs) young enough to fool around and do the things that result in pregnancy, but they were too young to be parents. 
You should have thought about that, right? But the folks who were guiding them and giving them an agenda and planning out their whole lives for the foreseeable future for as long as they were going to make a lot of money for record labels and everybody else, everybody else covering their lives, having them promote products, et cetera. The folks who were scheduling them and telling them, now do this, now do that, now walk like this, now wear that, now go here, now say this, now sing this song, now sing it this way, now dance this way. Those people helped, I would say, and we should understand this intuitively, those people helped both by what they did say and what they didn't say to create an impression that it would be the end of their careers, it would be the end of their lives, their potential, their opportunity to make something of themselves if they had this baby and raised this baby, got married and raised the child that they had conceived. What is the knee-jerk instinct for us when we read that Timberlake pressured Britney Spears to get an abortion? We say, oh, that's not at all what I thought he was like. And this is just shattering my impression of Justin Timberlake, right? If you thought he was some upstanding example before, ah, maybe you shouldn't have, right? Maybe you shouldn't have, and you shouldn't have just supposed that what you see is what you get with regards to this highly produced image of a celebrity. But it's funny to me how the moral judgment is still there, right? We just shift it, right? We say, oh, you shouldn't judge. You shouldn't talk about good and evil. You shouldn't talk about murder with regards to abortion. You shouldn't talk about morality out of sympathy for the woman who was vulnerable, young, impressionable, scared. But once it's open to us to blame the man, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, how could he, right? How could he? Oh man, that guy. Oh, I'm so angry with him for doing, well, wait, but wait a second. If you really meant it, that this is not a moral question, where's this emotional content coming into the picture from? Why all of a sudden are we back to moral categories of good and evil and passing judgment? He was a scared young man. That in no way excuses what either of these two young celebrities did when they were 19 in getting an abortion. But there's partiality, right? And also, oh, by the way, just like we would intuitively go to talking about who was influencing these two young people, who was advising them, who was telling them what to do to be successful, who was laying that all out, who was telling them what it's going to take to make it big time. Just like we intuitively go to those people and saying, well, what responsibility did they bear in this? So also with regards to young men and young women in evangelical churches in America, it's right, it's appropriate, it's natural for us to say, hey, what responsibility does the evangelical church bear for saying what it does say and not saying what it doesn't say? Showing partiality, saying to young people, here's what it takes to be successful, and if anything goes wrong, it's all your fault. Men, in that kind of a circumstance where we're not equipping them with a aspirational model that would include, yeah, you know what? Be somebody who makes music. Be somebody who sings and dances if that's what you want to do. But also you can do that or if you can't do that and 
raise a child, then think of the children. It gets messy really quick, right? This gets complicated. Not insofar as abortion. Not in my view. No, abortion is murder. It is. Is this a living human being? No? Okay, well then, if it's not a human being, if this little boy, this little girl is not a human being, then what is the species? I'm pretty sure if you analyze the DNA, if you sequence it, you're going to come up with human DNA. So, no, this is human. This is human. And if it's not alive, this baby, this boy, if he's not alive, this girl, if she's not alive, then why do you have to kill the baby? Why is that what an abortion is? We're talking about murder. No, we're not talking about murder. We're just talking about killing in a general sense. Well, then what is this baby guilty of? What crime, what sin has this baby committed that you would take this baby's life? No, no sin, no crime, certainly no crime, no sin at all. But even if there was something, you couldn't say it was a sin or a crime worthy of death. Ah, but they have original sin. You believe that as a Christian? Yeah, but there's still a category for murder. Original sin doesn't mean that everybody is guilty and everybody deserves death at the hands of another man. That's not at all biblical. But then you might say, ah, but Garrett, what were you just reading in 1 Samuel 27? You have David and his men going and raiding these towns and killing the men and the women. And I say, yes, yes, that's correct. And why is it so easy for us to pass judgment on that kind of a thing? And yet we come to a present day example, people who are still alive in the public eye, being celebrities, they definitely show their faces in public, sometimes not like they once did. Once these kinds of stories get out there, they don't necessarily get asked to sponsor products and services and brands and corporations like they used to. They don't necessarily sell albums like they used to. But you take my point, right? You take my point that there's something of a tell when we show partiality by not speaking to current day moral issues. But we are absolutely going to wax eloquent about what happened centuries ago or what happened in history farther back or what happened in great works of literature or what is recorded in the Bible. What is the benefit that we are hoping to gain? Are we hoping to be spoken well of by people? And so we hold back. We don't say things that might depart from what is considered to be an acceptable judgment, an acceptable conclusion. Do we say certain things, even if we don't fully believe it, even if we couldn't rationalize it, because we don't expect anybody to say, well, what do you mean by that? How do you know? Do we say certain things and then brace ourselves to repudiate somebody who would ask for an explanation? Well, tell me, how did you come to that moral judgment? How do you know that that's wrong? How do you know that that's good? How do you know that that's evil? How do you know that that's neutral? How do you know that that's just a choice, right? It's an abstract choice in a moral vacuum. We brace ourselves to ostracize those people in far too many cases. Why? Because we want purpose and belonging. And there's a perception that purpose and belonging is predicated on shared vision, shared moral values. But again, if the shared moral value is the man is always blamed, uh, the man is always blamed for whatever 
bad happens, whatever good doesn't happen, it's always his fault, then we are going to get more and more of men saying, I'm not going to get married then. I'm not going to have children then. If it's always my fault and you're going to blame me for everything and I'm the only one who has responsibility, the woman doesn't have responsibility here. We just feel bad for her at most. We say, oh, they're there. Come here. You don't need no man. You don't need that guy. He's not worthy of you. He doesn't deserve you. These are the kinds of things that as Christians, we're going to have to grapple with. We're going to have to figure out if we want young men and young women to get married and have strong, healthy, godly, happy marriages. And we should want that, as Paul writes in the New Testament. Because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife, every woman should have her own husband, and they should not neglect each other. They should not withhold affection as a way of trying to control and manipulate each other. So it's a good thing, right? Paul says that in the New Testament. Everyone should get married. I would that all men were as I am, that is unmarried and content, but because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should get married and have his own wife. Every woman should get married and have her own husband. What's the prescription for young widows? Make them dependent on the church? No. Find them a husband. Let them marry, which sounds very passive, like don't get in the way, but really it's more active than that. It's encourage them to get married. Help facilitate their getting married. Encourage them in part by not taking away that felt need for a provider and a protector. Why? Because otherwise they'll become busybodies. They'll just go from house to house. If they don't have to work and earn and support themselves, they'll become busybodies and they'll get involved in other people's lives in a way that is not helpful. It's not good for them. Don't make them dependent on the church and burden the church that way. They should be encouraged to marry. And then when they're married, they should submit to their own husband in all things. And then we should tell their husbands, hey, listen, make sure, right? You're loving your wife as Christ loved the church. And that does not mean you just rub her feet all day. And that does not mean that you just give her whatever she wants. That's not how Christ loves the church. That's not how he loved the church, past tense. That's not how he loves the church, present tense. He taught as one with authority. He commanded. She can't submit if you're not giving any direction. But then, ooh, wow. Now we're on thin ice. If everything that I just said about the evangelical Christian sensibility with regards to men and women and marriage is that the men have all of the responsibility because guess what? The men have all the responsibility or they have all the blame, but if they don't have any of the authority, then they are completely emasculated and at the mercy of whoever, whoever wants to stir up trouble, and there's not much they can do about it. They're always the ones who have to be reactive and just take whatever comes. Turn the other cheek. Be humble. Be more Christ-like. Yeah, you know, Christ was pretty confrontational. See also Matthew 23 that I was just referencing. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. Oh, that's blunt. That's really blunt. Do men in our churches And in our homes, Christians, do men have permission to be Christ-like in that way? Or do you say, as soon as the man starts to wield authority, take the initiative, confront problems, confront bad actors and bad behavior, as soon as he starts to command, instruct, direct, do we say, 
yeah, but Jesus was Jesus and you're not Jesus. You know what? You're not either, right? So that cancels out. You think I need you to tell me? Do you think he needs you to tell him? Do you think we need you to tell us we're not Jesus? No, no. Moving on. And again, not far. We don't have to go very far to find more instances, more examples of neglect and you might even say predatory, manipulative, exploitative ways of relating to younger generations, setting them up for disappointment, disillusionment, loneliness, failure, really. Lauren Feiner over at CNBC published a piece October 24th, last Tuesday, Meta-sued by 42 attorneys general alleging Facebook, Instagram features are addictive and target kids. Key points here. I'll just read the key points and you can read the full article. Watch the video if you want to. But for the sake of time, just the bullet points here and then some commentary. A bipartisan group of 42 attorneys general, bipartisan, by the way, not just Republicans, also Democrats, 42 attorneys general is suing Meta, alleging features on Facebook and Instagram are addictive and are aimed at kids and teens. The lawsuits demonstrate broad bipartisan interest in protecting kids and teens from online harm. Meta designed its Facebook and Instagram products to keep young users on them for longer and repeatedly coming back, the attorneys general allege. And that's true, by the way. Look up persuasive technologies. Look up the persuasive technologies lab that is associated with Stanford in Palo Alto, California. I've talked about it before. I'll talk about it again, but just look it up. Do not just take my word for it. This is a thing. Psychologists and programmers and hardware designers get together and they say, hey, you know what? You know what will nudge people to do what we think they should do to change their behavior because that's what they're trying to really get at is behavior modification. Let's make the button like this. Let's put it here. Let's make this sound play. Let's get a dopamine hit associated with repetitive, habitual, addictive behavior with regards to our platform, our service, our product, our hardware and software, all designed to keep everybody coming back. Like they're on drugs or something. Part of the reason I go here after talking about Aaron Wren's write-up and the Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake abortion is because here again, you find a broad consensus, bipartisan, and that's not to be taken for granted. There's not a lot of things that Republicans and Democrats seem to agree on, but this, you know what? If this is something we can agree on, let's work on that consensus. Let's Use that consensus to protect the kids, to protect teens, to protect young adults from being brainwashed, from being exploited, from being surveilled constantly, scrutinized, exploited, used, milked for money, milked for information, which will help to make money off of other people. The reason why social media is free, by the way, Facebook Instagram, have you ever thought to yourself, man, for as much time as I spend on here, it's amazing that this doesn't cost anything. No, you don't even think about that. Why? Because they don't give you time to think about that. 
You're not supposed to think about that. You're not supposed to think about how you really are the product. Your behavior being modified is what's being sold to somebody else. This is the conduit. This is the vehicle for modifying your behavior. How? By modifying your attitudes, by modifying your impressions of things, by modifying your emotions, playing games with your emotions. It's highly manipulated, highly manipulative, and all the more, no less, because you think you're in the driver's seat. And just like this is something that's been a feature of life for Americans, for instance, for the last 10 to 20 years, at least, with regards to social media, with regards to big tech, not for no reason has this been going on as long as it has been without being sufficiently confronted, identified for one, but then confronted for another thing. I would say it's of a piece with how men are being related to in evangelical circles. It's both a cause and an effect. It's a consequence, but it's also a large contributing factor for both and that you have partiality. You have those who have money, they have wealth, they have political power, either getting a free pass so we don't criticize them. You can't criticize them like Saul in Israel in 1 Samuel 27. You take your life in your hands when you criticize him, when you confront him about anything, when you tell him he's wrong about anything, when you tell him no about anything. If you say that's not right, that's not true about anything. And even if somebody is completely blameless, once they've been targeted, now everything revolves around either A, I'm going to hang back, say nothing, keep my head down, stay out of it, or B, I'm going to join this small remnant and then who knows where we go. And because people don't want to go and live with the Philistines, like David and these 600 men go and live with the Philistines for a year and four months, people don't want to do that. What happens instead? They either fall silent and they show partiality or they pile on. They stir up the powers that be by giving them exactly what they want, telling them exactly what they want to hear, doing exactly what they want them to do. This is not a new thing. It might be a new means, a new method, a new way of doing it, but it's not a new thing that's being done. It's a classic age-old case of partiality, showing partiality towards those who are very wealthy and saying, hey, they know better. And this is partly the risk, as we'll get into later in this episode, talking about Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. This is the risk in not having categories of good and evil objectively if we're utilitarians about it, if we're just psychological about it, at the end of the road, what you get is just building a more clever mousetrap for all our minds, for our attentions, our affections, our devotions, our sensibilities, our voting patterns, our shopping habits. And that's the idea, right? That's the idea is to get you to buy that person's product, to pay for their service, to sign up for their subscription, to get that person elected and reelected and reelected and reelected to high office. That's what's being bought and sold and traded. And that's why it's just crickets all too often. We say, oh, it's the fault of so-and-so. They won't get off their damn phone. Are we talking about who put those things into the phone in the first place? Are we analyzing that? Are we giving advice on how to use this thing safely and not become a slave to it? All things are lawful, yes, 
Not all things are beneficial. Agreed, Paul. Well said. All things are permissible, but I won't be made a slave to anything. Okay, good. Now, how do we not be slaves to these things? To these people who use these things to make us slaves after a fashion. I would say the first step is being willing to admit that we have been manipulated. We've been deceived. We've been tricked. You have to start with being willing to admit that, that this has been the way of things. You have to start with being willing to hear, say, for instance, Jesus telling the crowds and his disciples, do and observe whatever they tell you, these scribes and Pharisees, don't do and observe what they do. What is that? Well, that's to say, these guys are hypocrites, but that is to say that they're play acting. That is to say that they're being deceptive. That is to say that they don't actually mean it, but it's a game because they don't want you pulling back the curtain. They don't want you beginning to question their genuineness, their trustworthiness. That's not profitable for them. It might be profitable for you, but it's not profitable for them. The trouble is you start saying those kinds of things like Jesus did, and then you're going to have people wanting to do to you what they did to Jesus, which again, won't mean that you are Jesus, but it will mean that people are people. Chris Bray over at The Blaze, October 20th, commentary, the time has come to see the evil social conditioning, so put on the glasses. He writes, we've trained for this, and it isn't good news. U.S. Rep. Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, may or may not become the Speaker of the House. He doesn't. He hasn't. He didn't. But every Democrat in D.C. will helpfully explain along the way that he's an insurrectionist and following the alleged Republican John Boehner, a legislative terrorist. He attacked our Constitution. Also, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, is literally a blood-soaked murderer as protesters keep screaming in her face with the obvious moral authority that accrues to Hamas supporters. Everyone to the right of Ken Buck or a cup of tepid water is a terrorist, insurrectionist, murdering slaughterer who murders and kills and brutally destroys everything, everywhere, and hates the children and something, something, mass horror, terror, killing, death, blood, something. And that's putting it very gently, I promise. The historian Richard Hofstadter famously described a paranoid style in American politics, especially on the supposed far right, and hilariously located that tendency to madness in the golf sweater libertarianism of the Munster Barry Goldwater. What we do in America, Hofstadter explained, is constantly manifest quote, the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy in our discourse. But maybe Vladimir Putin told him to say that in 1964. Watching discussion about Israel and Hamas over the last 10 days, I've been depressed by the explosive emotional atmosphere. On social media and in news site comment threads, people assume the worst of other people, carefully overread or underread to arrive at the angriest possible response to the thing they've briefly hate-skimmed and spend their time denouncing enemies and blasting disagreement in the tone of rage and disgust. Reader email and comments this week have explained to me in proximate messages that I'm a bloodthirsty Zionist pig and a disgusting Jew hater who obviously despises Israel. Writers on subscription-based platforms are talking about how hard their paid subscribers have been storming away from them since more or less the minute Hamas attacked. No time for disagreement. We're left only with disgusting monsters whose evil is towering and unspeakable. All of this makes sense. To a point, people are dying, terrorism is meant to provoke, and war comes with rage. As Hofstadter argued decades ago, angry political discourse is just normal American behavior. But the last two weeks haven't felt 
normally angry and dismissive, they felt explosive, like the moments before a deadly brawl. And I invite you to perform a thought experiment with me. Imagine that Hamas attacked Israel in a horrifying rampage of torture and murder that targeted unarmed people in their homes and at a music festival, and Israel responded with an aggressive attack on a broad list of targets in Gaza. Imagine the last two weeks the same, but with one difference, no pandemic first. No pandemic means no lockdowns, no prolonged social isolation, no habituation to physical inactivity, no school closures, no devastating wave of anxiety and depression among children, no disgusted parents and the resulting school board confrontations, no parents are terrorists, NSBA letter, no face hiding mask mandates with vicious social shaming campaigns over filthy anti-mask scum who want to murder their neighbors, no calculated campaign of degradation against anti-vaxxer trash who should die. Imagine how we'd be talking to each other this week if we hadn't been conditioned for degradation and rage-inflected social banishment, you anti-vaxxer MAGA scum. We've been taught this, and we'd better unlearn it by force of will and demand that others do the same. Paradoxically, the time has come to be enraged by the enraged to shun and demean people who want us to shun and demean. The efforts at social conditioning aren't hard to spot, so see them. To borrow from Roddy Piper, put on the glasses. In California, polling consistently shows that sizable majorities of all voters, not just parents, strongly favor parental notification policies in schools across the ideological spectrum. Close to no one believes that schools should be having secret discussions about sexual identity with children. Vanishingly few people, even in a thoroughly left-wing state, actively favor a culture of anti-parent secrecy in schools. So look at how the news frames the debate. Quote, LGBTQ plus students in conservative crosshairs, end quote. This is culture war social conditioning dressed up as news, and it's shameful. It harms us all a little more every day, like a poison with cumulative toxicity. The subtext of mainstream media product is hate, 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 hate. All day and every day, they're prodding you. Read calmly. Speak calmly. React slowly. None of this implies adopting the capitulationist behavior of the allegedly moderate wing of the House Republican caucus. We need to at least aspire to firm calmness, rejecting the trained response that media and the expert class have pounded into us. This approach won't work with ardent leftists on the site formerly known as Twitter, but it may gradually work IRL. Sorry, in real life, put on the glasses, get others to put on the glasses, be aware that MAGA-prodding demagogues like Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, are evil trash who, sorry, are people who are unfortunately acting with malicious intent. This may take some practice. Now, I read this, okay? I read this. That's the end. That's the whole thing. I read the whole thing for you from Chris Bray. I read this, and it feels like a much shortened version of Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. What I just read for you there is very much of a piece with, and I'd be very surprised if he didn't read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. It's very much of a piece with The Righteous Mind. Stop making everything into good and evil. Let's rush to demonizing or sanctifying who we hate and who will destroy the people we hate. (laughs) And there's a point to that, right? There's a time to not. It's not always good, evil. Sometimes it's wise, foolish. And it's not for no reason. And I was just thinking of this as I was reading Chris Bray's write-up at The Blaze. It reminds me of what James says in the New Testament. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about 
the righteous life that God desires. Now, sometimes anger is appropriate, it's justified, but definitely not all the time. When you're angry, you're stupid, as Andrew Clavin has said. Anger makes you stupid. And when you're stupid, you're easy to control. And that's part of the reason why social media and the corporate media and politicians who are demagogues want to keep you angry because they're trying to control you. Rather than calmly laying out their principles, their prescriptions, here's what I want to do, here's the problem, here's what we want to do to try and address the problem, mitigate these hazards, take advantage of opportunities together. This will be good for all of us. This would be in accordance with our principles and the rule of law. This would be profitable. This would be prudent. This would be safe. Rather than that, where you would have to really make your case and persuade the other person. So much of the last century has come to be really just who is better at manipulating the other side. And the left is very good at it. They're very effective. But then that at root, that tendency to manipulate says quite a lot about what we believe about God. Does God approve of such things? Is he even real? Does he even exist? Jonathan Haidt, for instance, is an atheist. So no wonder he gets utilitarian and evolutionary about everything. But is there a God in heaven who rules and reigns and believes I will have to give an account for how I handle the truth, how I relate to the people around me, whether I'm honest with them, whether I tell them how it is, whether I invite them to participate in reality, whether I'm kind to them, whether I'm patient with them. What do I believe about my fellow man? Do I believe that my fellow man can be persuaded, should be persuaded, is persuadable? Do I believe that I am capable of knowing truth, knowing what is good, that I would argue in defense of it, that I would propose it in a persuasive way? The prerequisites for what Chris Bray is arguing for here are love for God and love for our fellow man. No two ways about it. There's just no other precondition that's going to restore civility to our public discourse, online or IRL. For our last segment, though, let's talk about The Righteous Mind by... Jonathan Haidt. This book is the most recent book that I have finished this year. 64 out of 64 books. This is the latest. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. That isn't to say I hated it. That isn't to say it's an evil book, but it is to say Jonathan Haidt comes at this from a decidedly evolutionary perspective, from a very atheistic perspective. He sees the good in organized religion, but he sees it in a utilitarian way. He sees it as what it's useful for, first and foremost. And there's a part of that that I say, okay, you know, that's better than saying we're just going to mock organized religion. We're just going to scoff at organized religion. Yes, okay, good. If there's a little bit of dignifying of the people who are religious, who do believe not just that God exists, but that we should love him, we should fear him, we should obey him, we should trust him. If you see those people as still deserving of some respect and credibility, well, then that's good. And if you just say, hey, I don't believe in God personally, but 
I appreciate that you do, and I see good effects. I see positive benefits to you believing in religion. Well, then that's better than saying, I don't believe in God, and you're an idiot because you do believe in God. I'm just going to mock you mercilessly to no end in public for everybody to see. Jonathan Haidt is not that last type. He's not that second type of atheist. He's not the new atheist, Richard Dawkins type. And that's good, right? That's better than (laughs) I might have feared going into this, knowing that Jonathan Haidt is an atheist. But the subtitle, right? The subtitle for The Righteous Mind is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And admittedly, I am uncomfortable with the subtitle. Good people, this is loaded. And how this or that author, this or that commentator or intellectual or layperson, common man might mean good person, good man, good woman, good people. Obviously, there's a semantic range which Christians have to recognize, have to admit, what do we mean by good person, good people? What do they mean by good person, good people? What Jonathan Haidt means, it seems to me, is that the vast majority of people are inherently good. People are born good, and then they go bad based on environmental influences or based on ideology or what, right? Based on wrong thinking, based on influences from other people who are also engaged in bad thinking, I suppose. But then here's a a major part, a major pillar of the righteous mind that we would get away from talking about our disagreements in terms of, I'm a good person, you're an evil person if you disagree with me. Or what I am proposing is good, what you're proposing is evil if what you're proposing conflicts with what I'm proposing. Let's not rush to the categories of good and evil when we have disagreements about politics and religion. And I would agree with that broadly, but if you carry that to the extreme, that is not helpful. In fact, it's extraordinarily counterproductive. It's amoral. I don't believe that morality is just some social convention. We may have opinions about morality. We shouldn't conflate our opinions about morality, whether it's over here or it's over there or it exists at all. We shouldn't conflate that with objective reality. I believe that just like beauty has a certain aspect, has a certain eye of the beholder quality to it, so also morality. That doesn't mean that beauty is subjective, but that is to say that the way we approach beauty may be subjective, and there are subjective things that we have to grapple with. That's why we disagree. That's why we don't always come to the same conclusions. And sometimes when we come to differing conclusions or when we're arguing very different vantage points, very different angles or very different positions on truth, on beauty, on goodness, the reason for that is because we're all working with incomplete information. We all are finite creatures. We're all fallible creatures. We're all works in progress at best. And I would go a step farther and I would say another component is as a Christian reading my Bible, it's because we're born with a sinful nature. 
it's because of original sin. It's because Adam and Eve, but especially Adam, took the fruit that was forbidden. When God said, don't eat of the fruit of this tree, you can eat of any other tree's fruit in the garden, but don't eat the fruit of this tree. Adam did eat, he disobeyed, and that affected every aspect of our being. Not in the extreme. Augustine would say evil is just the diminution of the good, and you have to be careful with that as your only measure of what is evil as well, because if you're not careful, you go the utilitarian route and you say anything that's not as useful as it possibly could be is evil. Well, that's not what that means. I would say, ultimately, objective good and evil are defined by God. And this is one of the great benefits that I have as a Christian. And this is one of the great benefits that Western civilization has had relative non-Christian, non-Western civilizations. This is one of the great benefits I've had relative atheists and agnostics and secularized folks like Jonathan Haidt. At best, they say, well, let's get away from rushing to name-calling, rushing to demonizing one another. Let's be quick to listen. Let's be slow to speak, slow to become angry. James would say, somebody like Jonathan Haidt would say something similar, which is good, but do we understand that there is such a thing as good and that it is predicated on what God says is good? What God says is good is good. What God says is evil and don't do it, that is what is evil. Now, I want to read for you the publisher summary, and then I have a few scattered threads to pull in and hopefully weave together to help you understand the righteous mind better on the other end. But first, like I said, let's read the publisher summary over at audible.com. Copyright 2012, Jonathan Haidt, published 2012, Gildan Media, LLC. Quote, why can't our political leaders work together as threats loom and problems mount? Why do people so readily assume the worst about the motives of their fellow citizens? In The Righteous Mind, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt explores the origins of our divisions and points the way forward to mutual understanding. His starting point is moral intuition, the nearly instantaneous perceptions we all have about other people and the things they do. These intuitions feel like self-evident truths, making us righteously certain that those who see things differently are wrong. Height shows us how these intuitions differ across cultures, including the cultures of the political left and right. He blends his own research findings with those of anthropologists, historians, and other psychologists to draw a map of the moral domain, and he explains why conservatives can navigate that map more skillfully than can liberals. He then examines the origins of morality, overturning the view that evolution made us fundamentally selfish creatures. But rather than arguing that we are innately altruistic, he makes a more subtle claim that we are fundamentally groupish. It is our groupishness, he explains, that leads to our greatest joys, our religious divisions, and our political affiliations. In a stunning final chapter on ideology and civility, Haidt shows what each side is right about and why we need the insights of liberals, conservatives, and libertarians to flourish as a nation. And there's a accompanying reference guide that you can download. I don't even know if you need to buy the book on Audible to download the reference guide. You may not need to, 
All I know is I was able to download it because I did buy <laughs> this book on Audible. It's a 14-page document you can open with Acrobat Reader. I'll just skip on down to page 13 here with the liberal moral matrix, the libertarian moral matrix, and the social conservative moral matrix. Here we have figure 12.2, 12.3, 12.4 on page 13. And you can see that the liberal moral matrix, as Jonathan Haidt presents it to us, shows that the most sacred value is care for victims of oppression. Now, we need to take a step back and realize that the reason why victims of oppression are such a high priority for liberals is because they put everybody into either the category of oppressed or the category of oppressor. And that's an important thing to recognize about liberals, especially today. Folks who vote with the Democrat Party, folks who are socialistic, they get these categories of oppressor and oppressed for every situation from Marx, from critical theory. All of history is just the tale of oppressor and oppressed. As a Christian, I would say all of history is a tale of righteous and wicked people, wise and foolish people. That's what I would say. You can pretty much boil every story down to here are the righteous and here's what they're doing and here are the wicked and here's what they're doing. Here are the wise people, here are the foolish people and look how they talk about things differently. Look how they relate to opportunities, threats, their strengths, their weaknesses very differently. But to a liberal, care, harm, those are the biggest priorities. And this is why, according to Jonathan Haidt, liberals are so on about gun control. It's not that every liberal who votes for the politician who says they're going to restrict access to firearms for the general public wants to take your guns away so that they can carry out a Bolshevik revolution. No, 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 no. It's not like that, right? It's not like that. And don't boil it down to that and don't rush to that conclusion. Are there people in the Democratic Party or who vote Democrat or who are on the political left in the U.S. who would like that, who would be okay with that if that accomplished their larger utopian goals? Are there people on the left who would go there for the sake of the so-called greater good? Yes. But does that mean that that's most liberals? No. The bait is you're caring for those innocent victims of mass shootings, for instance, for example, or fill in the blank with whatever the legislative solution is for some problem where people are being harmed. And you'll see liberals again and again cast things in the light of, here are the oppressors, here are the people who want to profit off of you, here are the people who want to make all this money selling you guns, for instance, or what have you. Here are the big corporations that are just making all this money off of destroying the planet because they're producing fossil fuels or they're burning fossil fuels. And you're the victims of oppression because you're addicted to oil. You're addicted to natural gas and coal. You have those people. And then you also have the radicals who would say, we're okay with the dramatic decrease in Earth's population that is necessary to bring our carbon footprint down dramatically to nothing if at all possible to make up for lost time. We're okay with any means necessary to accomplish our individual, personal, or activist group vision of the good life where the planet heals, 
right? The planet is healing. They said when COVID had everybody staying home and the highways and the roadways were empty of cars because nobody was allowed to go to work or nobody was allowed to go to the grocery store or church or school or fill in the blank. The liberal will generally speaking say, we want to protect people from COVID. We want to pe- we want to protect people from climate change. We want to protect the victims of oppression from the oppressors, usually people with a lot of money, usually people who are the entrenched conservatives. It's those conservatives' fault. They want to conserve the status quo. They don't like progress. They just want to keep you from enjoying life. They're stealing from you. They're defrauding you. They're oppressing you. But then that is to say that the next category, the next moral value that is very important for liberals is liberty oppression. So they like liberty, but then they're always on the horns of a dilemma because so often the liberals, classic liberals notwithstanding, the liberals so often want to come up with regulative solutions. They want to pass laws restricting what you can do over here You can't do this, 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 supposedly to protect you. This is for your protection. But then they also want to say, we want freedom to choose, right? A a woman needs the freedom to choose to get an abortion, or she needs the freedom to choose to love whoever she's going to love. So don't you dare. You can't even criticize. You can't even disagree with that because that is oppressing her. That is harming her. We have to care for her. See, we have to silence you because we care for this woman who might get an abortion or she might get married to another woman or whatever, fill in the blank. After those two values for the liberal, according to Jonathan Haidt, the next highest value is fairness as opposed to cheating. So they prioritize care over harm, liberty over oppression, fairness over cheating. So if the liberals If the Democrats, if the leftists reacted very energetically to all questions about the integrity of the 2020 election, recognize that it is actually consistently something that the Democrats bring up again and again, pay your fair share in taxes, right? They don't like people who cheat. That's of a piece with harm to other people. If you cheat, if you rig the system against minorities, against people of color, against people who have disabilities, people who are of various diverse sexual orientations or gender identities, gender expressions. If you have rigged the system against them, well, that's not fair, right? That's cheating. You're oppressing them. You're harming them, but you're cheating also. It's not first and foremost that you're cheating. It's more so that you're harming somebody. That's how they determine what is good and evil. Was somebody harmed? right? And that's typically what a liberal will ask when you object, right? You object to gay marriage. Well, what's it to you? How does this affect you? How does this harm you that somebody would go and get married to another dude and they're a dude? Somebody would get married to another chick and they're a chick, right? What's it to you? It doesn't harm you. You know, that's the biggest deal for them. That's how they determine what is good and evil. And this is also why, if you ask me, Jonathan Haidt doesn't necessarily go here or say this. Maybe he does somewhere, but I didn't find it in the righteous mind or it didn't stick out. I think this is also why liberals consistently are the folks who reject biblical authority because they find 
examples in the Bible where people are harmed, and it looks like there's some tough love at best, but then there's actually punishment. There's discipline. There's judgment on evildoers, but that is to say that there are evildoers, and they're not always the rich, and they're not always the powerful with lots of authority. Sometimes they're the general populace. The general people become corrupt. The earth was filled with violence. It wasn't just the folks at the very top who were disseminating the bad ideas. It was them, but it was also the common people. It was everybody. The liberals were theological liberals before they were social liberals, before they were political liberals. And that's an important thing for us to recognize. And that's part of, I will say, again, not Jonathan Haidt, not Jonathan Haidt, I will say that's the unraveling. That's why classical liberalism with atheism, with theological liberalism can't be sustained. Because at a certain point, you deny the harm that's being caused. You refuse to admit it and you claim that anybody who would criticize the things that are actually causing harm because they are a violation of traditional Christian morality, you silence those people because you say, oh, but that's cheating for you to go there, right? For you to go to scripture. It's against the rules. We're going to make rules where you can't bring the Bible into this. You can't talk about these Bible stories or these accounts and these commands and these promises, these displays of God's power from the Bible. You can't talk about those things as authoritative. That's cheating, right? Or you can't talk about those things. You can't cite those verses. You can't quote those parts of the Bible because you would be oppressing somebody, right? You're just upholding this oppressive system. You're maintaining it. Therefore, you're part of the problem. Therefore, you don't care about people. Now, they'll reference the Bible, right? They will. They're theological liberals. That doesn't mean that there are no folks who claim Christianity on the left side of the spectrum among the Democrats, among the leftists. There definitely are Democrats who say, I'm a Christian. I'm every bit of, I'm every bit as much of a Christian as that Republican over there. There are definitely Democrats who take extreme exception They are very offended if you suggest that they can't be a Christian and vote for the Democrat Party. In fact, there's a lot of moderates who say, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't say that, right? A lot of moderate Republicans, a lot of independents would say, oh, no, 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 don't you dare say that. No, 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 no. But again, this goes back to this moral matrix. This goes back to what do you most highly value when it comes to forming your judgments, coming to conclusions? What's the biggest priority? Interestingly, according to Jonathan Haidt, loyalty betrayal, very low on the priority list. Authority subversion, very low. Not all that important. Sanctity degradation, not all that important. In fact, if you have to betray somebody in order to protect somebody else from harm, if you have to subvert authority in order to protect somebody or liberate somebody, or promote fairness, so-called, usually along social justice lines, so be it. That's fine, right? What is authority? It's just a thin veneer of legitimacy, and it's just a means to the end. All of these things are a means to the end of protecting people from harm, liberating, being fair, right? Making sure that everybody pays their fair share, everybody does their part. Sanctity degradation. Now, again, with the theological liberalism, You start by playing 
little word games with the biblical text. And you say, oh, that's not true. And I don't believe that. And this is just mythology. And that shouldn't be taken seriously. And don't take that literally either. And that's no longer for today. And you don't really understand what that meant at that time. And it's not the same anymore. And things like that. And that might degrade reverence all around for the authority of God, for the goodness of God, for the holiness of God, for the authority of God himself. That might degrade our high view of God, but as long as it protects people. For the liberal, as long as it liberates, as long as it promotes their idea of fairness, that's okay. It's worth it. Interestingly, the very next figure, 12.3, from this PDF, the libertarian moral matrix, you might guess, as it's right there in the name, libertarians have the highest value placed on liberty versus oppression. Liberty instead of oppression. As in, if you take away liberty, the extent to which you say somebody is not allowed to make certain choices, they're constrained in their choices, that is the extent to which you are oppressing that person. So this is where, in the extreme, libertarians are practically anarchists. They would be okay with, or they would prefer, just abolishing the government rather than have it continue on on the current trajectory where it becomes more and more and more enmeshed in every decision one would make, every purchase, every relationship one would form, every work someone would do, everything somebody would say. They would rather see our government be abolished. The libertarians would. Now, they care about fairness and cheating, but care versus harm, loyalty, versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, sanctity versus degradation. Height says, yeah, not so much. Now, I have seen libertarians who do care about the care versus harm moral matrix. They do. But then it's swallowed up by this idea that our only responsibility when it comes to civil magistracy is give people liberty, right? Give people the freedom to do what is going to be best for them. And then people individually will help to take care of and protect, provide for those who are in need. Individuals will be better able to come through for each other. We don't need the government to protect people from harm. We need the individual to be freed up to protect themselves or to protect their neighbor. We don't need the government protecting you from making bad choices. We need to be free to make bad choices. And if we suffer for our own bad choices, well, so be it. We'll be free to choose to do something else. Libertarians care about fairness, but again, that's swallowed up to a great extent in liberty. What is fair? Well, fair is you get to make your own bed and lay in it. And if it's a great bed, cool, good job. How how did you do that? All right, let me take some notes. If it's a messy bed, if it's nasty, if it's gross, well, then that's on you, guy. And I'm going to not do that. I'm going to take this as a cautionary tale. Now, what's interesting is, as if all of this isn't interesting, the social conservative, according to Jonathan Haidt, the social conservative pretty much has all of these matrices equal in thickness, right? Imagine a thicker or a thinner line for each one of these categories. The social conservative says, we have to balance all of these concerns all the time. Care, 
liberty, fairness, loyalty, authority, sanctity. We have to balance all of these. Sanctity and authority, T, or they intersect. They come together to preserve the institutions and traditions that sustain a moral community. That's what the social conservative wants to see. Care and liberty, those intersect. Those come together. But fairness, that's its own separate line. Loyalty, that's its own separate line. But it's interesting because the conservative will, with fairness, with truth, point out that the libertarian and the liberal have very thin, almost non-existent priorities for loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And the social conservative says, hey, these are really important. If you want to maintain care for people, if you want to maintain liberty, if you want to maintain fairness, you must be loyal, right? A husband must be loyal to his family and not betray his family. We should respect those who are in positions of authority and not subvert them. And we may disagree with them because there's a higher authority, but then that's how we frame the situation, particularly when a lot of social conservatives are Christians in the West, in America. We're Christians and we say the reason why we would disagree with or contradict or disobey somebody who's in a position of authority legitimately is so that we would submit ourselves to a higher authority. We're not trying to subvert this person who's in authority. In fact, we're commanded to submit to every authority. But if there's a higher authority that this lower authority is themselves subverting, well, then we must obey and submit to the higher authority, the highest being God. The highest court in the land wins. We care about sanctity, but we balance what is sanctified, what is righteous, what is to be regarded as holy. We balance that by asking questions about, okay, is this protecting somebody? Is this helping us to be more free? Is this fair Is this loyal behavior, faithful behavior? Is this an authority? We balance all of that as Christians who are social conservatives by looking at what does God's word say ultimately? Or as Edmund Burke would say, we look at previous generations and we say, what did previous generations do? What did they figure out? Okay, in the absence of a better idea, we're going to go with that. And we're going to say that there's a certain sanctity to the tradition that's been passed down to us in this respect, or the tradition that's been passed down to us in this respect. And here we would have lowercase t, tradition, like Edmund Burke. And we would talk about traditions because it's plural, and they don't all come from the same people, and we don't get them all in the same way. But what are they? There's something like a bookmark. There's something like a placeholder. Hey, just to make sure we're not going backwards and we're not erasing gains, that previous generations worked so hard for and sometimes fought and died for us to have and to enjoy, we're going to regard as holy what they regarded as holy until we find that the authority of God's word, for instance, runs contrary to regarding this as holy. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be loyal to our spouse. We're going to be loyal to our parents or our siblings. We're going to be loyal to our church or our town or our state or our nation. We're going to be loyal to our God. These are balanced 
values, balanced priorities that help to reinforce one another and to help us to think of them in contrast, these various moral matrices, Jonathan Haidt gives us these figures on page 13 of the PDF that comes with the book on Audible. Moving on though, the righteous mind, why good people are divided by politics and religion over at goodreads.com shows us basically the same publisher's summary, but the about the author part is what I want to draw on here. There we find that Jonathan Haidt is the Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He's the author of The Righteous Mind, of course, yes. Also, he's the author of The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. He lives in New York City. This book, if I didn't mention it already, published first in 2012, is 11 years down the road, a very different read than it would have been when it was first published. This book, published before the COVID craziness, before the candidacy of Donald Trump, before the presidency of Donald Trump, before the 2020 election, before so much that has happened in the last almost dozen years, this book, it strikes a certain chord. Height talking about how it's counterproductive for us to rush too quickly to the worst possible interpretation of what one another says, what one another does, how that breaks down our political discourse, that breaks down our ability to hear one another and to make decisions together, to reason together, to convince and persuade one another. We've seen this play out. We have. We've seen this both among those who vote Republican, particularly those who vote Donald Trump, I would say, admittedly, and also those on the radical left who talk about anybody who would vote Republican or who would run as a Republican or who would serve in office as a Republican, the left absolutely rushes to good and evil. The Republicans, you can tell, they don't just say, well, we disagree with this, we disagree with that. No, no, no. They portray Republicans as evil, as corrupt, or at best, if not that, stupid. Right? These Republicans, they can't be trusted with power. They're a basket of deplorables. That's moral language, right? We're conjuring up disgust, but it's not disgust in the abstract. It's moral disgust. There's a claim that's being made about the moral character of Republicans and folks who would vote for Donald Trump, that they are deplorable. They are awful people. They're bad people. They vote the way that they vote. They say the things that they say. They do the things that they do because they're bad people. On the flip side, again, we just have to recognize that this is the fact. Republicans, especially those who have most ardently, most vocally, most publicly supported Donald Trump, don't just say the Democrats are wrong about things. They say the Democrats are either stupid or they're evil. They're either stupid or they are malicious, which is to say that they have bad intentions. What is helpful in this book is that we would recognize most people don't think of themselves as having bad intentions. Whether objectively they're wrong, <laughs> what they say is not true, what they do is not good, what they present to the people around them is not beautiful, it's false, it's corrupt, it's ugly. Whether objectively that's 
the case, that's very much in dispute. Why is it in dispute? Well, because you have one origin story. You have one prologue prepping this group over here to see every decision along these lines. And you have a different origin story, a different prologue prepping all these other people over here to see those same situations in a very different way. And then they see one another as being representative of the other group. They don't recognize one another. The people on the far left end of the political spectrum, the people on the far right end of the political spectrum, they don't recognize one another as being of the same group. When this turns into more than just a discussion, an angry argument, where this turns into a civil war is when we say we can't even think of ourselves as being in the same country. This town isn't big enough for the two of us. We cannot share even the same space anymore. And now we're going to have to decide who stays and who goes. That's where this goes. That's where this heads historically in countries where it's not ratcheted back. If you can't figure out how to see the other person as part of your group, your country, your people, at a certain point, it comes to blows. It comes to out-and-out warfare. But then here's what is missing that I think is necessary. Jonathan Haidt would say, let's get away from talk of good and evil as categories into which to plug our decisions and our opportunities and what we have done, what we will do, what we are doing. Therefore, he says, let's get away from good and evil because it just gets everybody all upset, right? And there's a lot of atheists who, this is why they are atheists. They say this very kind of a thing in various ways. They'll say, religion is the cause of all of the wars. If we just didn't have a religion, then we wouldn't have all these problems. Now, Jonathan Haidt doesn't say that. Actually, he says, no, organized religion is important and legitimate and necessary. Now, he says it's necessary and it's good and it's important because it's an evolutionary mechanism. This is part of how we've survived as a species, that we work together. Chimpanzees, he points out at a certain point, don't work together. They don't cooperate. They don't carry things together. They don't work together to make tools. They'll independently make very, very simple tools and engage in simple problem solving and troubleshooting, but they don't work together. What makes us human, he would say, what makes us so special as human beings is we work together. What the conservative would say, who is more of Jonathan Haidt's atheistic evolutionary persuasion, is traditions are something like inherited social DNA. A Christian conservative like myself would say, not for no reason, does God say, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it? That's in our DNA. Not for no reason, does God say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? And what? Love your neighbor as yourself? It's not in our evolutionary DNA. We didn't evolve this way, but the fittest, so to speak, who survive are those who most closely align with what God says is true, what God says is good. And we gravitate towards beautiful things. Why? Because we would suppose that what is beautiful is going to have a lot of that original goodness from God's six days of creation. That's what the Christian would say. What is beautiful has not been corrupted in the same way. Now, this is dangerous, right? And the Christian who reads Proverbs would say, 
Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. A woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. Don't judge a book by its cover. That means don't count a woman out, for instance, or a man. Sure. Just because they're not going to win a beauty pageant. They're not going to be on the cover of any magazines as sexiest man of the year, sexiest woman of the year. But the Christian would say, beauty is good, and there's something true about beauty, and yet it's distinct, and so you could have somebody who's beautiful, and they don't have good moral character, and they don't have discretion. They don't have wisdom. They're beautiful, but they also don't know anything, and they rest on their laurels, and that's not good. That's a character flaw. That's unwise. So the Christian would say, we recognize all these things are important, and we should value them. We should appreciate them as gifts from God, as part of God's created order. But the Christian would say the solution here is, one, forgiveness. Not you didn't sin. There is no such thing as sin. Not you didn't do what was evil. There is no such thing as evil. But the Christian would say, I agree with God. I don't always know how to do what God tells me to do, but I agree with God. I should not repay evil for evil. I should overcome what is evil with what is good. I should forgive those who sin against me just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven me. That's the solution. Not, no, you never sinned against me, but I'm going to forgive you for the sin. You did sin against me. What you did was evil, but I forgive you. What you said was not true. I'm going to gently, respectfully, patiently correct what you just said, even if you hate me for it, for the sake of these other people, because I'm trying to love my neighbor as I love myself, because I'm rejoicing with the truth, because love does rejoice with the truth. And actually, that's how I'm going to care for you. That's how I'm going to secure and preserve liberty. That's how I'm going to respect authority is I respect God's authority first and foremost. So here's the thing, right? In sum, in conclusion, the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt starts with a faulty premise that good people are divided by politics and religion. No, no. Sinful people are divided by not just politics and religion, but everything, right? Every distinction. And we gather together when it's not motivated by love for God and love for one another. We gather together, we group together because it's useful. I'll give Jonathan Haidt that. It's useful. It's effective. It's beneficial. It's better to group together with other people than it is to be totally off on your own, study after study after study regarding every aspect of our being shows you will be healthier, you will be happier, you will be more prosperous, you will live a longer, fuller, happier life if you group together with other people who want to pursue good objectives with you, who want to pursue the provision and the protection thing together with you. And you want them to see you as part of their group and you want to see them as part of your group so that you are actually working together. As soon as that starts to break down, that you see one another as part of the same group, your cooperation also breaks down. Covey talks about this in The Speed of Trust. Organizations that are high in trust are faster, more efficient, more productive, happier, less stressed, less stressful. They have less waste. They're more secure. They're more successful all ways around. But then the trouble is, right, here's the little clause, the fine print at the bottom of the contract. What's necessary for trust is that you know how far you can trust people and when you can't. You understand human nature. You understand God's nature. Trust 
in the West has for, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years, when it's been stabilized, when it's been actually cogent trust in the West, like Tom Holland writes about in Dominion, trust has been predicated first and foremost on I trust God. God is not a man that he should lie. But that is to say people lie. And that doesn't mean that all people lie all the time about everything, but they do often enough. Everybody is prone to, susceptible to being deceitful, dishonest, sometimes even deceiving themselves. So we trust God. And then even when we don't trust people to say the true thing, do the right thing, be beautiful, (laughs) even when we don't trust that, we still love them as we love ourselves. And that's how it works. That's how you're able to forgive because you've been forgiven by God. That's how you're able to trust other people to a point. Be wise, but that's how you're able to trust when you're able to trust is because you trust God. You trust that God is going to prosper you, protect you, reward you. You want God's pleasure. So in other words, Jonathan Haidt's book here, The Righteous Mind, it has some interesting observations. His social psychology observations, the studies that he cites, I would say in many cases, they're like ingredients to a meal that could be prepared by a Christian, and it would be a delicious, nutritious, filling, satisfying meal. How he puts them together, what he leaves out, I can't give this book high marks. And it's because he's an atheist. It's because he's missing so much. There's so much that I wanted to argue with, not angrily, Nevertheless, feeling a sense of disappointment because, ooh, ah, ah, that does not necessarily follow, right? Your conclusion does not necessarily follow from the premise. And also, oh, by the way, you're leaving this out of your equation, and I know why you're doing it, but the conclusion you're coming to leaves much to be desired, and it's naive. It's naive because there's a stubborn rejection of the role that not just organized religion plays— Yes, there is that, and he does recognize that, but specifically Christian faith in the West, in the life of the West. Tom Holland is a great resource. If you're going to read The Righteous Mind, read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, as something of the rest of the story and a great companion. There's a lot of what is good and what is true, and if you wanted to complete the picture, you could read Edmund Burke, not Reflections on the Revolution in France, although that's an excellent work, but read Edmund Burke's philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. His 1757 treatise on aesthetics. Read that and you'll understand why Jonathan Haidt is right about one thing, at least. Social conservatives are essential. As much as the liberals, as much as many libertarians have a visceral reaction and they reject social conservatives as the cause of culture wars and conflict at home and abroad. Oh, if we just wouldn't have our ideas of right and wrong, we could all get along. No, 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 no. Jonathan Haidt is right about this. Social conservatives, you need us. The rest of y'all, you need us. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. If our social conservatism is conserving Christian faith, Christian ethic, Christian truth, as applied, right? The applied science of Christian truth in every area of life. 
That's our inheritance. That's what we want to conserve. And if that's not what we're conserving, then we're not conserving anything. It's a Jenga tower. And the libertarians and the social liberals, the theological liberals, the leftists, they just keep pulling planks out of the Jenga tower. At a certain point, it collapses. If you don't have social conservatives saying, whoa, 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 not that one. Nope. You see how this thing is starting to wobble? Nope. At a certain point, it is appropriate to introduce the idea of original sin into this and also the solution to original sin, which is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But more to come. Rest assured, check out these books. If you're into that sort of a thing, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.